Georgia, and we like KUCI in Irvine. In Irvine. <laughs> the opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good morning and welcome to this July 11th, 2012 edition of Writers on Writing on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. We are broadcasting live from the University of California campus in Irvine. We're streaming on the web at KUCI.org. We are always available via podcast. I'm your host, Marie Stone. This is Writers on Writing. We are dedicated to the art and business of books every single week. Barbara and I are here with authors, poets, agents, giving you the latest and most up-to-date information on the publishing world. I'm joined now by Camille No Pagan, author of The uh, Art of Forgetting, and coming up in the second half hour, Janet Groth will be here talking about her latest memoir, The Receptionist. Camille No Pagan is a journalist specializing in health, nutrition, and profiles of interesting and innovative people. Her articles have appeared in dozens of national publications and on websites including Allure, Cooking Light, Forbes.com, Glamour, Men's Health, O, Prevention, it goes on and on. She's a contributing editor at Arthritis Today and a member of the ASJA. Her debut novel is The Art of Forgetting. It's published by Dutton, an imprint of Penguin, and it's the subject in part of our chat this morning. Camille, welcome. Oh, thanks, Marie. I really appreciate it. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for coming on. So uh, let's start with an introduction of the book. What led you to write this? What led you to go from from journalism and, and short pieces into uh, the complexity and length of a novel and um, then take us kind of into the, into the novel itself and introduce us to your, uh, to your characters and your world. Oh, yeah. Well, I'd always wanted to write novels. That was always the goal long before I became a journalist. And I was a voracious reader, and I still am. And I was working on a journalism story about three or four years ago at this point about head injuries and women, um, how to protect your brain health. And a physician I was interviewing said to me that, Women worry a lot about breast cancer and heart disease, and for good reason, but that women under the age of 40 don't spend enough time worrying about their their brain health and specifically uh, their risk of injury and protecting their heads. And so I started looking into the topic and discovered that things that would seem like a minor injury, a uh, biking injury, a small car accident, could impact the brain in a way that could have a profound impact on the memory and personality. And I thought, there's a really good novel in there. So the the germ of The Art of Forgetting was born, and I started um, coming up with my characters and came up with Marissa and Julia, two longtime friends. Marissa is a magazine editor, and Julia is her charismatic best friend from high school years. They moved to New York together. They have a very complicated friendship, as most women do. And when Julia is hit by a cab, she suffers a brain injury. And it changes her personality and also begins dredging up some issues that both friends had repressed. They had really pushed these things to the past for the sake of the friendship, and suddenly they're brought to the forefront again. Right. It's funny, as I was reading about your um, research into brain injuries, I mean, I, I'm such a hypochondriac and have such a laundry list of things that I'm always worried about, and I'm like, oh my God, here's another one. <laughs> You're in good company. <laughs> right. Here's another one I have to worry about. It is stunning how little impact, you know, I was, I was just sort of doing research alongside you there, how little mm-hmm. impact there needs to be for there to be, yeah, you're right, really profound changes. 
terrifying. Yeah, and what's interesting is that it's very random. So some people, they could be in a, a seemingly major um, accident of some sort, suffer a head injury, and come out fine. It just really depends on how the brain tissue is impacted. It's almost a snowflake-like um, odds of, of, you know, what will happen. The outcome is different every single time. And as a writer, that gave me a lot of liberty with the storyline. I could use medical fact, but also know that I could confidently write about this woman. And these things really could have happened because it, it's so different depending on the person. Yeah, the beauty of the brain and its complexity. Yeah. 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 And the tragedy. Yeah, and the tragedy. <laughs> right, right. Yep. Now, in your research, was there any, were there any inconvenient truths that as you sort of had shaped the novel and then you got more into your research, you were like, darn, you know, this isn't fitting in with my, you know, conception of how things were supposed to go, and then you had to manipulate around it? Well, not so much, only because I did so much research on the front end. I think that what a lot of readers have struggled with was that the ending is not tied up in a pretty bow because brain injury is very open-ended and oftentimes when someone comes back to a close version of their former self it takes years for that to happen so they could ultimately have a great outcome but it takes a long time to get there so my book takes place over the span of one year and I leave um, Julia in a way that you don't know what ultimately happens to her so for me as a journalist I felt that that was true I think readers, um, some of them wanted a, a different outcome. Right, right. Tell me a little bit about um, these characters. So um, Marissa is a journalist herself, and she mm-hmm. also writes about brain injuries, which is great. Uh, yeah, she's, she's a health editor right. um, at a glossy magazine, which is something I did early in my career um, a, a decade ago at this point. And I, I still write for a lot of women's magazines, and it's such an interesting world. Uh, the way that it, uh, there's a very particular type of journalism that magazines like to use. And I had Marissa be a little frustrated in her career. She's a person who struggles with her confidence, and she wants to be a more confident person, but has been in the shadows of other people for so long, including Julia's shadow, that she struggles to break out. And part of her struggle is not just coming out from um, Julia's influence, but also learning how to say, no, this is not what I want for my career. I want to do something different. Um, so a lot of her her backstory takes place within the magazine that she works for. And then Julia is um, someone who was just born confident. She's an only child, a dancer who turns into a ballet publicist after her dancing career stalls. And she's never seen an obstacle that she couldn't get around. And um, Unfortunately, this leads her to overpower Marissa in some ways. She finds it a little too easy to get Marissa to do what she wants, and their friendship suffers as a result. Tell me about inspiration for these people. I know autobiographically, Marissa, you know, job description-wise tends to look a little like you, but do you... do you put some of yourself in each of these characters? Do you have people in the exterior world that you sort of model them after? Tell me a little bit about, you know, fleshing out their personalities and where that inspiration comes from, from within mm-hmm. you. Oh, thank you. That's a really good question. I think a lot of people, readers in particular, always assume that the main character is the writer. And for me, I'm sure there are parts of me that are Marissa, but I see myself in Julia, too. I think that 
you know, it, it's hard to admit the ugly parts of your personality, but I'm scattered throughout every character in the book. You know, I, I drew on some of my my own friendship experiences. And I think what's interesting is with two people, you know, you can be one way with one person and another way with another friend. So perhaps you're the confident one in one role and you're the less confident one um, with another friend. So um, in terms of Julia, she's just a compilation of people I've met in my life, you know, with some people who are very confident, others who felt great about their career. Um, I had a dancing friend growing up who was very charismatic, and I, I looked to her to craft Julia, even though she was not a, a bad person and she didn't do bad things to her friends, but her charisma was very inspiring for the story. Did you, I know this is written in first person, did you ever mm-hmm. write from other people's points of view to kind of get into their heads a little bit more, or was that, was it kind of as it came out is how it came out? Yeah, as, as it came out is how it came out, um, but I'm writing a, a novel now that I'm almost finished with, and it's told from the perspective of four different people. And that has been a wonderful experience. I really hope that it's my next published book because I I just really enjoy switching characters, you know, to see how the voice changes even in the first draft stage from person to person and think about how that individual would view the world. It's it's a really neat thing. It kills me how fast you write. I'm so jealous because oh. you wrote this book in like four months, right? <laughs> I did, although, you know, it took three times as long to edit. It, there are downsides to writing fast. Um, and I wrote another novel, historical fiction, in between my current draft and the previous one that turned out to just not be what I wanted to publish. So, you know, I think it, it takes a lot of courage to move away from 80,000 words sitting in your digital drawer. But <laughs> Oh, my gosh. I had to do it. Okay, I'm going to add to our listeners that you also have like a three-year-old and a six-month-old and a full-time job on top of it. (laughs) Well, they're four and one now, which is a little easier. It gets easier every time. Um, And I am pulling away from the magazine writing to try to focus more on my fiction. I think that that is ultimately where I would like to see my career. And for the first book, it was okay to do it at night. Now I find that I just need a little more mental space. You know, I I think I'm becoming more ambitious in my writing, as most writers do after they've published one or two books. And, um, you know, fingers crossed that I end up doing novels full-time. Yeah, no, I have no doubt about it. I mean, I have to say... I'm exhausted at night after, you know, doing virtually nothing all day. I'm pretty tired at night. So to have a full-time job and two children and then sit down to write a novel in the in the after hours, I think, is, uh, that's commendable. <laughs> oh, thank you. Well, I think it, it's just got to be the right story. You know, I had been working on one book that I ended up abandoning, and I had no desire to work on it at night. And I realized it was just a sign of my enthusiasm about the people I was writing about. Whereas with Forgetting, I saw suddenly had this story in my head and I just had to get it down. So it was more mental energy than physical energy because I'm definitely, I mean, if you saw me when I woke up in the morning, I'm <laughs> not looking pretty. <laughs> I'll tell you that. That's <laughs> funny. My guest this morning is Camille Noah Pagan. The book is The Art of Forgetting. You said someplace where you sketched this out. So it sounds like you're sort of an, an outline sort of person that gives yourself a framework to go on and then fills in the blanks. Is that how it went? Yeah, I I don't do an exhaustive outline. Um, I do figure out my ending usually before I start a book 
because it helps me with the middle of the story. I want to know where I think the people are at least going to end up, even if it changes a little. Right. And I try to figure out what the major plot points are, and then the rest just happens. So with The Art of Forgetting, Marissa ends up coaching um, a girls' running group <laughs> for girls' ages. I believe it was 8 to 13. Mm-hmm. And that was something I did not plan to put in the book originally. And I was I was writing it, I realized she just needed more of a not an interior transformation because I think when we sit in our heads for too long, at least this is my experience, it's hard to just internally motivate yourself to change. But I had volunteered in the past and found that getting out and being among other people, sometimes that helps you figure out what you want to do and gives you the courage to kind of get out of your own shell. And so I put that in without planning it, without outlining it. I think the story takes a life of its own as you write. Yeah, right. Yeah, and I thought that was a really nice way to sort of do a flashback perspective to, you know, those early years that they met sort of at that time of life, right, in the mm-hmm, junior high yeah. years, and, you know, give the perspective of, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm battling a cold, give oh, the perspective sorry. of girls, you know, in those formative friendship years when friendships are so <laughs> hard on girls, I think. And, oh, yeah, uh, they really are. And yeah. what's interesting is that I think... I, you know, I think back to my friends who I've had for that long. There are just a couple of them. And it's easy to get stuck in a pattern with someone you've known for so long. It's just like when you go to see your mother, even though you're both adults and you've been adults for a long time, you can kind of find yourself reverting to your 14-year-old self. Mm-hmm. It's like you get stuck in these personality patterns. And that's what I wanted to show with Marissa and Julia. Marissa had gotten stuck in this bad pattern. It's not that she has no confidence in her total life or that she hasn't been able to speak up for herself but with this old friend she just finds herself flipping back into things you know behaviors speech patterns all sorts of things that she should have moved past already oh my god isn't that true that is exactly how it goes yeah (laughs) (laughs) tell me (laughs) tell me also about sort of the balance between because you have some really rich beautiful minor characters in here as well and oh, thank you. it was there ever a tension in, you know, some of the minor characters trying, you know, were they were they ever competing for attention on the page or was that balance always fairly organic, um, you know, to try and do the minor character arcs as well? Mm-hmm. Well, The Art of Forgetting is the first book I ever wrote, um, you know, from beginning to end, an entire draft. And it was a real learning process for me. I had a bunch of characters that ended up um, compiled into single characters. So Naomi, who is Marissa's boss, she's just a real voice of wisdom. She was a couple characters at one point in the book. And my agent, the wonderful Elizabeth Weed, she helped me, even before we submitted the novel, to just work through some of those issues of too many people on the page because it can water down the book a lot. And I didn't realize that as a very baby novelist, um, just the effect it would have on the overall story. So I'm glad it resonated for you. Yeah. I'm glad that my whittled down people worked. <laughs> Indeed they did. Um, and the other thing I wanted to talk about was the the art of flashback and positioning mm-hmm. backstory. Because I think a lot of writers struggle with, you know, I have this bulk of information that I need to get out to you about what happened in the past, but I don't know kind of where on the clothesline of the plot to hang it. And this mm-hmm. felt also very organic. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, was that, tell me how that part went. Was that also just sort of... just how my mind works as a writer. I think that 
There are a lot of writers who are beautiful language people, and I love a good sentence, but that's not my strength right now. You know, that's something I go back and work really hard at. I think the plot is more where my brain just goes. So to do the flashback, to figure out how it would fit into the overall story is a little easier for me. You know, with the book I'm writing right now, I see that again. It's four people who've been friends for a really long time, two men and two women, and it just makes sense for me when they would think back and how to kind of work in those details that would have influenced them in their present day lives. Um, but, you know, the, the line-by-line edit is <laughs> it's just <laughs> ugly over here. <laughs> My guest this morning is Camille No Pagan. The book is The Art of Forgetting. Can you read to us a little bit? Sure. Okay. I will. I'll do a section from... Um, early in the book when Marissa goes to visit Julia at the hospital and she is just beginning, she meaning Marissa, is just beginning to understand that Julia has been impacted in a profound way even though her head's not broken open. Um, the doctor's trying to explain to her that Julia has changed. So this is in Marissa's voice. When Julia calls to me, I immediately think of Dr. Bauer's warning. She may not be the same person you knew two days ago. Hi, she says with a faint smile, seeming to recognize me. She looks around as though she's just noticing her surroundings for the first time. Is this a hospital, she asks. Her sentence is complete, her words more coherent than I'm expecting, but they're also all wrong. Julia's voice is not the rich, gravelly voice of the friend I have grown up with. Instead, it is high and light like a middle school girl talking to the boy she has a crush on. Dave glances at me sideways, just as shocked as I am. Yes, hon, you've been here since yesterday. Remember a taxi hit you, I ask, approaching the hospital bed. Instead of hugging her, I grab her hand and squeeze it, afraid to come too close to her head, even though it's unbandaged. Julia blinks at me blankly, and I decide now is not the time to quiz her on what happened yesterday. I'm so happy to see you, I tell her. You don't know what a scare you gave me. I'm sorry, she says, almost playfully, like a child apologizing because she's been instructed to. Then her eyes dart around suspiciously. Who are you? Where is my mother? Your mom will be here tomorrow, I respond, trying not to let my voice betray the panic, quickly wrapping its tentacles around my heart. I'm Marissa. Don't you recognize me? Mom, she says, sighing, her voice a little lower this time. It's not obvious if she's saying this to calm herself or is simply incorrectly addressing me. I'm tired. I want to sleep, but these silly women keep waking me to make sure I'm okay. It occurs to me that by these silly women, she must mean her nurses. It sounds juvenile and syrupy, and not like something my quick-witted friend would normally say. She turns back to me and gives me a small smile. Doctor says I'm lucky. I think we're the lucky ones, I tell her, blinking back tears. Sitting in the waiting room last night, I had let my pessimism take over. As I paced the stark blue lobby, my mind spiraled further and further into worst-case scenarios. I imagined being told that Julia had died. I wondered what her funeral would be like and who would be there, and even if she would prefer lilies or orchids for the service. I dreaded calling friends of ours to tell them she was dead and tried to wrap my mind around life without my best friend. I squeezed Julia's hand again, confirming she really is here in front of me, alive. But as my fingers close around her palm, she jerks away, nearly pulling out the IV. Her eyes dart from my face to the hospital door, and for a second I expect her to make a run for it. What is it, Jules? I ask her. Nothing, she snaps. It's nothing, Jenny. Don't worry about me. Jenny, I ask. Jules, it's me, Marissa. 
Oh, I know who you are, she says haughtily, instantly reminding me of my grandfather after he developed Alzheimer's. The comparison sends a chill straight down my spine. Now leave me alone. Do you hear me, Jenny? Leave me alone, she yells, and on instinct, I back away from the bed. Mm, that's great. That was Camille No Pagan. Pagan. I knew I was going to do that eventually. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Reading from the art of forgetting. Tell me about the the hardest part, writing wise, of the either craft wise or structure wise or character wise. The hardest part of writing this novel and and sort of how you overcame the challenge. I think. Oh gosh. I think that the editing process, I, um, you know, having been a journalist for more than a decade, I'm used to being edited, but I was not anticipating how personal it would feel with a novel versus a magazine story. Um, with magazine journalism or online or newspaper, I've just never minded an editor's input. I think it always creates a better process. And although I had a brilliant editor for this novel, it was just very different when she had suggestions that I didn't think would fit or or that I knew would fit, but they would change the tone of the story. And that took a long time. I think it was about four to five months to get through her edit um, of the novel mm. and, and make it a coherent story again. So that was interesting and a really good learning process. I felt like I had taken an intensive course in novel writing Hmm. by the end of it. Yeah. Did you have other readers for the work in addition to your editor? Yes. Yeah. My husband is always my first reader, and he is not as much a fiction person. He's a really skilled um, nonfiction reader and writer, and it's nice because he's a good line editor. He helps me with word choices and Hmm. catches things that I just would not catch. And then my sister, who's 10 months younger than I am, she is just reads everything she can get her hands on, highbrow, lowbrow, and she's a really great plot editor. So she helps me see holes in my plot and um, comes up with suggestions when I'm feeling stuck. And those are my, my two go-to people. I was going to say, we all need your sister and your husband. That sounds <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> it's a nice team. Yeah, that is a good team yeah. you've assembled there. And you also oh, said that some of your friends had read this and shared their own experiences of friends with brain injuries or something, somehow this this resonated with people in your lives as well. Yeah, I didn't tell anyone I was working on a novel except for my husband and my sister. Um, just because, you know, publishing, people are saying, you know, no books are being published right now, it's horrible out there, and I didn't want to hear it. So I kind of wrote in secret at night or whenever I could find a few minutes, and after I had a whole draft in my hands and I realized I wanted to go out with this, you know, that I I wanted to try to sell it. I thought I had something worth making the effort for. I told two good friends of mine about the story, and they both looked at me, and they just were astounded because one of them had actually suffered a brain injury, and I'd never known about it. It was before I'd met her. And the other one had a childhood best friend who had a brain injury, and it ultimately tore their friendship apart. And to hear this from them... and. I told them about the story, and they just said, you know, this is spot on. I thought, I'm actually on to something here. I have a real story that people might believe. So it was just a nice little confirmation. It's funny. I talk to so many novelists who have similar stories that there's some aha moment or there's some, you know, moment of kismet or something during the process Mm -hmm. that tells them they're on to the right thing and uh, 
because it's such a long, daunting, you know, slog that you kind of need it these is. external things along the way to say you're doing the right thing, you know, signs yeah, from the universe. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it's hard when the sign from the universe never comes. I mean, I found that with um, the other book that I read and ultimately put aside, and I may go back to it at some point, but I just knew not only was I not getting any signs from the universe, but something wasn't resonating with me. And it was a real challenge to just say, okay, I'm going to put this aside. I'm going to let go of this year of my life I've just spent, and I'm going to try something different. But when it works, it's it's what you need. It's the ultimate reward. Yeah. I'm wondering if you can look across your your body of work, the unpublished novels and this novel, and sort of discern what your main areas of concern are as as a human being, as a woman, as a writer, mm-hmm. um, separate and apart from the brain injuries, is it, you know, the strength of friendships? Is it what, can you kind of start to map out where your center of gravity is on what you're concerned with? I, yes, having abandoned so many novels <laughs> between <laughs> forgetting and the one that I'm working on now, I, I can say with certainty and having, I think I know what I'm going to write next to, it really is about relationships, and I think I'm coming from a place that is sad and funny. I think ultimately that is how I write. I, you know, have suffered some things in my life that have affected me, and I think I always have a little bit of sadness sitting on my shoulder. But as a writer, I think that's a good thing. And then the other part of me, my way of embracing life is humor. I, I just find real joy in it, in subtle humor, but those two things I see in my work, and I hope they stay, because those are the types of stories that I like best as a reader, too. Right, right. You alluded to this earlier, the um, importance, uh, or the the difficulty of the publishing world now, and I'm wondering if you see any Mm -hmm. importance in having a platform, if your work in journalism uh, sort of gave you, you know, the the right diving board to jump from into novel Mm -hmm. writing, or if that didn't really help you at all, but if, if there's a necessary necessity of platform in publishing now? I think it helps an editor buy your book because it, it does help you get more coverage when the novel comes out. I think that it only goes so far and that, you know, I look at who gets covered and who doesn't, and a lot of times the platform just doesn't matter. It's a good story that somehow catches on and people recommend it, you know, via word of mouth. I just finished this book called On the Island that Plume is publishing by Tracy um, Garvis Graves. And it was an e-book on Amazon. She doesn't have a background in publishing. Um, she self-published this book. It sold over 300,000 copies. It's a love story. And it's amazing. And, you know, it's just the kind of story that I'm going to tell everyone I know about it because it was just so good. And I think that is ultimately what sells. It's not, you know, I've written for the Times or Allure or whatever. It, it helps, but it doesn't sell books. Yeah, it's funny. Apologies for the uh, emergency alert coming in. But it's, uh, <laughs> it's funny that somebody recently said, you know, every novel has one out of, you know, a hundred chance in selling, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said, but that one novel had a 100% chance of selling, and, you know, number 59 never had any chance of selling. So it really is, you know, the quality of writing that the good work will get out there and the, you know, the not-so-good work never had a chance anyway, so. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, yeah. We, uh, unfortunately, we're drawing down our time, but I'm wondering if you have 
advice for for people, particularly, you know, it, it still continues to strike me uh, juggling children and full-time jobs and novel writing and finding the motivation to sit down at night. Um, any advice for writers who, you know, are in the, the long slog and perhaps wanting to give up or perhaps saying, you know, I just don't have the time? Any mm -hmm. uh, words of wisdom? Well, I think ignoring the naysayers is what helped me most, ultimately. Having been in publishing, around so many publishing people, I have a lot of supportive friends, but I think that there were three people for every one supportive friend who was talking about how horrible the publishing world was and how impossible it was to get published as a writer. And you just can't listen to those people. It's not that the truth changes, but I think you have to cling to that shred of optimism that it's going to happen for you. And if your story matters enough, it's going to matter to someone else, too. I think that that, in the end, is what kept me going. Isn't that true? Yeah, that's so true. Camille Noah Pagan, how do people find you? You have a website. I have a website, uh, com. Last name is N-O-E-P-A-G-A-N.com. And, of course, I'm on Facebook and Twitter and all those things. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, thanks you. thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you. That was Camille Noah Pagan. The book is The Art of Forgetting, and um, it is out and available now. You can find her online. You can certainly find the book online. We're going to take a short break, but please stay with me. Janet Groth will be here in the second half hour. You're listening to Writers on Writing on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. We'll be right back. see you go come back baby let's talk it over one more time my heart's full of sorrow mama aching tears gone 24 hours child seem like a thousand years Come back, baby, let's talk it over one more time. talk it over before you go away come back baby let's talk it over one more time weekly signals the only weekly news commentary radio broadcast that features a dog named Molly. Weekly Signals, 
with Nathan Callahan and Mike Kaspar. News with a bite. Friday mornings at 8 here on KUCI 88.9 FM. Radio that keeps on giving. happened to our other promos. They're, uh, they're being very quiet. <laughs> Welcome back to Writers on Writing on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. We are broadcasting live from the University of California campus in Irvine and streaming on the web at KUCI.org. This show will join the other interviews up on the web and available to you via podcast. Feel free to visit iTunes. We are under College Radio. You can always visit Barbara's website, penonfire.com, for direct downloads, as well as information on past shows, upcoming shows, salon events, and more. I've been announcing this the last couple of weeks. We have another great salon event coming up on July 17th. Jess Walter, who was on the show a while back, is joining us for that. He is the author of The Financial Lives of Poets, among other things. These events always sell out, so if you're interested, I encourage you to sign up early and uh, check us out there. Again, that's Tuesday, July 17th at 7 o'clock at the Scape Gallery in Corona Del Mar. I'm your host, Marie Stone, and I'm joined now by Janet Groth. Janet is a former Fulbright lecturer in Norway and visiting fellow at Yale, is a professor emeritus at English at Plattsburgh College in New York, uh, in New York and teaches at Columbia School, University School of Continuing Education in the summer session. She is the author of Edmund Wilson, a critic for our time, winner of the NEMLA Book Award. She's late um, co-author has written three other books on Edmund Wilson, most recently Critic in Love, a romantic biography of Edmund Wilson in 2005. Of her latest, it has been said, if Mad Men were set in the offices of the New Yorker magazine and told from the point of view of the receptionist, it would mirror her seductive and entertaining look back at her 21 years at that legendary institution. It is The Receptionist and Education at the New Yorker. It's published by Algonquin, and it's the subject of our chat this morning. Janet, welcome. Thank you, Maria. I just want to say that uh, you can hardly be blamed because of the fame of Philip Roth and putting the G in front and <laughs> saying growth, but it's actually growth, I like to growth. say, as in growth and development without the W. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. In fact, you know, I was running out of time in our little midsection there, and I always stop to take the time to do that, and I didn't do that today. And this is, uh, no problem. This is a lesson. So let's start with, uh, with you telling us an introduction both to the book and to your decision to write it. Tell us about, you know, a little sketch of your 21 years at The New Yorker and your decision to write about those years. Well, I, I like the lead paragraph in Steve Kurtz's uh, feature on me in the New York Times on June 28th, just a couple of days after the pub date. He, he, he said it was a, a debut, a literary debut, 55 years in the making. And the truth of it is that I was suffering from all kinds of writer's blocks uh, and uh, for one reason or another never did appear as a writer in the New Yorker after all those years at the reception desk and uh, it took a PhD and the confidence of many years of teaching college English to get me to pull out those long uh, sequestered 
notebooks and write this book. You know, I'm curious about your experience in writing it versus your experience in living through it. We were talking earlier this hour about memory and, you know, the the changes of memory and, and forgetting. And, of course, there's no way to, to answer these questions for ourselves because, all, you know, all we have is our own memories. Uh, but I'm wondering if the, the writing about it revealed something to you about those years that the living through it didn't. Oh, very much so. I think that uh, memory is one of the most mysterious and wonderful things to explore. And, and certainly the memoirist gets a first row seat to that. I, I discovered uh, really the arc that was always being talked about by my publisher and, uh, and my editor uh, that uh, I didn't see when I was living it because you just don't think of yourself as on, on a journey, as they say. But in the course of writing it and rewriting it and revising it, uh, one does explore that very topic, and it's, it's quite wonderful. It's, it's like uh, writing a... Uh, finally a coherent narrative of what one was chaotically going through. (laughs) Right, right. So tell us what took you to the New Yorker. Was that always a destination spot for you, something that you'd admired? Or well, I wouldn't have dreamed of being able to uh, to get there. Uh, Such was my intimidation, and before it, at the at the college drugstore magazine rack, where I confess I I, I uh, leafed through the New Yorkers very faithfully, but uh, couldn't afford at that time to buy them regularly. <laughs> anyway, I when my uh, the opportunity arose for me to be in, interviewed for a job there, I was quite beside myself. <laughs> and you know, so you you talk quite frankly in the book about your being one of the only people there that didn't advance in sort of the normal ranks that people do advance. Tell me a bit bit about that. Well, I loved Calvin Trillin's uh, quote to to Stephen Kuritz. He said, it wasn't so easy to climb the ladder at the New Yorker because nobody was quite sure where the ladder was. (laughs) And um, uh, they had a kind of uh, fetish about not giving titles out, not not having a trainee program, and uh, one could quite easily be fall through the cracks. Right, right. It doesn't sound like you fell through the cracks there, though. That's such well, a... I found my niche. I certainly had a wonderful and, and, and rich experience on the so-called writer's floor, and uh, maybe I was finding that so fascinating I didn't push as hard as I should have to get up to the editor's floor or the fiction reader's floor or whatever. Yeah. No, it sounds plenty rich down on the 18th floor, that was for sure. <laughs> Thank you, Marie. It was funny because I, I read a quote, something from you about how the New Yorker was putting out more kind of trauma victims or, or you know, people that were in requiring psych- psychiatric help than, uh, than, <laughs> than the wars. <laughs> yes, yes, their, their insurance policy was heavy on 80% coverage of, of, of shrinks because they felt <laughs> that was a, a, an absolute uh, cost of doing business. <laughs> Do you think it was, I mean, you, you set such a beautiful time and, and place, and I know the 50s and 60s were rich with, I always said I was born too late because I would have been such a great, you know, sipper of cocktails. You would have looked well in a swing skirt I, or, yeah. or, or, or heels and nylons and all that. And, you know, and a, the, yeah. the cigarette holder and all of that. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> 
Do you feel like it was the time or was it the place or was it the New Yorker in particular um, that sort of conspired to make these such rich years or, or sort of all of the above? I, 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 know, I know you're expecting in all of these, but I think it really was the exceptional nature of the New Yorker that uh, put the stamp of inevitability on it. Yeah, yeah. So share with us a few of your stories to give listeners sort of a flavor of the book. Um, just out of your own head right now, share with us some of the, the, the favorite stories of those years. Well, uh, there was the, the quote that Alison Rose, my successor, used in her book, Better Than Sane, about how it was, it was the place where people who were congenitally unemployable went to find jobs. And uh, I, I, I quote uh, Rogers Whitaker and A.J. Liebling as the source of that particular um, slur, if it is a slur. Uh, but I, I, I'm not sure that it was entirely accurate. It just indicated that it was a place that uh, had wide tolerance for eccentricity. Right, right. My guest this morning is Janet Groth. The book is The Receptionist. It chronicles her 21 years as a receptionist at The New Yorker magazine. Can you, uh, can you read to us from the book for a moment? I'd love to. I, I, I thought I'd read from the chapter called On Writing, Not Writing, and Lunching with Joe. <laughs> the dream I had of being a writer, a dream I carried with me to the New Yorker, began in my teens with the conviction that I was meant to be one. I had long harbored these yearnings, inevitable, I suppose, since I had spent many adolescent hours immersed in novels about the artist as a young man. The gender switch was made easily enough. These were fantasies, after all. I even wrote and submitted an entry to Mademoiselle's short story contest. I didn't win that contest. Another blonde with daddy problems won that year. Name of Sylvia Plath. The dream went with me when I left home in September 1954 and lived in a large Victorian boarding house on the edge of the University of Minnesota campus. It was called, quaintly enough, Mrs. Smith's Tea Room. On my own, at last, I found I need no longer be lonely. Suddenly, I was among other people who liked to read. In the back room, uh, there were tables full of graduate students, most of them male, with interesting, scruffy clothes and brooding looks, and they conducted passionate discussions about Wallace Stevens within earshot of me. I learned to smoke. I tried to look sophisticated in a blonde chignon and bought a trench coat, the first of a long line of trench coats with epaulets. I was in heaven. Exempt from freshman English, I took a creative writing course, turning my adolescent traumas into short stories. My writing teacher, Morgan Bloom, a frog-like man from a place he called Louisiana, sat hunched over his desk in front of the beat-up lecture room in Falwell Hall, making me appreciate things like literary flashbacks and the uses of dialogue. Several of the stories I wrote for him appeared in the campus literary magazine called The Ivory Tower. All seemed to be going smoothly until I discovered a near-pathological shyness in myself. In the writing classes I took, student work was regularly read for discussion. I soon realized that I suffered inordinately whenever attention was called to my writing. It mattered not that it was favorable attention. 
In anticipation of having to read one of my stories aloud at the Pillsbury Mansion, I developed a migraine so severe that I asked the hostess to show me to the nearest bathroom in which to be sick. She did, and afterward, with great understanding, she helped me to a darkened room. There she insisted I lie down on her own bed and pressed a damp washcloth to my brow, assuring me that someone else would read the story in my stead. Crowning the paroxysms of self-doubt that accompanied each distinction bestowed upon my work was the Delta Phi Lambda Spring Banquet, my third and final year. I was to be one of the honorees, first at cocktails and then at the white linen-draped table on a dais in a hotel ballroom. I went through agonies of discomfort, dreading the moment when I would have to stand, be applauded, and receive a stiff parchment, signifying that I'd won the Anna von Helmholtz Phelan Award for my short fiction. Thankful that I was not expected to speak, I took the parcel handed me, and had it been possible, would have pressed my left wrist and rendered myself invisible. Wonderful comic book, that. Wonderful heroine, Invisible Scarlett O'Neill. That's wonderful. That was Janet Groth reading from The Receptionist. I guess there's no way to, to really answer this question, but I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about if you had written this memoir in the direct aftermath of working at the New Yorker, if you'd written it in the late 70s, early 80s, as opposed to writing it now, uh, if, if those intervening years give you a sense of this life sort of happened to somebody else and I can look at it with this objectivity, or you know, if, if you feel that some of the immediacy of the time was lost by the intervening decades, do you have any thoughts on, on what this... I, would I do, Marie, and thank you for phrasing it so beautifully. I I needed that distance, that uh, that sense of this is this is really the objectivity I've longed for, and that and also the wisdom and one hopes compassion, right, right. with which to look back at my my early. Uh, errors in judgment, etc., and those of other people around me and who were interacting with me. I think it was necessary, and I and I so much prize the opportunity to have done so and to have put it in what I like, what I like to think of as, as, as a, uh, a, 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 good, a good perspective from which to view it. What did your time there do for your own writing and your own work? Do you think some of these creative types sort of rubbed oh, off on you? Oh gosh, yes. There was there, um, those. There were those wonderful lunches with Joseph Mitchell that I referred to in the beginning of this chapter. Um, uh, he and I, by the way, I I not realizing it. He perfectly well realizing it and suffering it. Both were, uh, had writer's blocks of monumental proportions. And, uh, and, and we were, we were uh, companions and compatriots in a kind of uh, no man's land where we were trying to write and couldn't write for one reason or another. Of course, Joseph Mitchell was already a wonderful and well-respected writer. I was on the uh, uh, unknown side of things. And the fact that we had these literary lunches together was just, just, just magical. Hmm. Are there things over spending time with such a wide range of creative types <clears throat> that you can, sort of lessons or patterns that you can garner about individual creative personality types? Were there similarities? 
I think I I think I would have to endorse Edmund Wilson's idea about the wound and the bow. I really do. He was uh, he he was coming through the office in those days as a terrifying eminence grise. Uh, he would uh, he, he would intimidate me and certainly everybody else around him by virtue of his his uh, his uh, renown as a critic and. Um, and and yet he had written this wonderful and compassionate um, introduction to his collection, The Wound and the Bow, in which he suggests that there is something necessary about the suffering that writers go through, whether it's paroxysms of self-doubt, as I call them, or uh, or some other terrible trauma in their childhood that really, really is important to the artistic and creative endeavor. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's uh, it's such a great window into this time frame, uh, separate and apart from the story itself. But you know, the, this observation that it's like Mad Men being being set in the receptionist's office. But you know, a window into where you were when Kennedy was shot, and you know, all of these historic events that were happening around you, obviously. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm, I've been battling this horrible cold. Well, it's all right. It's lovely to know that you know the book so well. But yeah, it's uh, it, you know it, it's such a, a um, window for somebody of of my generation, you know, some decades behind you to to have sort of a chronicle of of the times through a very specific point of view. I think that's it's really nice. Well, I love to get reader response, and I am getting some wonderful uh, emails about all of this. I'm sure. Great. I'm sure. I loved um, you know you share obviously so many other people's stories while telling your own. Was there any fear or hesitation in, in sort of outing these other people's affairs and, uh, <laughs> and well, life when, when there was, I gave them a co- the cover of a pseudonym, and otherwise people had themselves uh, been written about, and I was very careful about that, so that I, I was uh, uh, protective, I suppose you would say, of anybody who, who, uh, who, who might be wounded by it. It's funny, some people have, have observed that if you write about somebody very honestly, they will never, but unflatteringly, they will never recognize themselves <laughs> That's in writing. That, that, that was often said after profiles uh, ran in The New Yorker. Um, the, uh, the subject was sometimes very unflatteringly portrayed and, <laughs> uh, and, uh, and, and, and was completely smitten with the whole idea. <laughs> It sounds like the process of writing about it was uh, was incredibly helpful to you in some ways. Was it harmful to you in others to read? You know, there are some fairly open, raw, wounded times I that you know, went through. I don't pretend that they were not difficult to write, but the act of writing them, this, the the uh, uh, liberation of seeing them out there in print and no longer hiding. Uh, Anything that I thought, well, if it was only exposed, I would certainly be drummed out of the human race. Um, all of that has worked out to my advantage, I think. I like it a lot. Right, right. My guest this morning is Janet Groth. The book is The Receptionist. And um, a, a little bit on um, the writing process itself in structuring the memoir. I, I don't know if it's completely chronological or how you... It isn't quite. Uh, uh, within each chapter, I try to pursue the storyline that is begun. But and, and my own life takes a, a chronological uh, arc from beginning to 
to end, but but there were there were uh, twists and turns, and I must credit my senior editor Amy Gash at Algonquin for having taken a chapter that I had buried very far back in my in my manuscript, the chapter called Jack Spills the Beans. Hmm. She said, "This is you buried your lead. This is this is it. <laughs> you you there you were at the reception desk for all these years, and we have to we have to put that up front." And we have to talk, uh, the call the book, the receptionist. Oh, I said, oh, no. Yes, she said, and she was right. Which is interesting because you said of yourself you never re- referenced yourself really as a receptionist. That that was... Well, that's true. I, I, I suppose I was putting all kinds of veils over that. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. Did you have readers for this work in the aftermath to sort of, you know, give you guidance and points of view and, and where there were holes and things? I, I'm not sure I know what you mean about uh, uh, about uh, responses from readers that no, say I'm there sorry. are holes in the manuscript. Well, no, readers, uh, yeah. uh, everybody who lived through it and is still alive says it's absolutely <laughs> spot on. Uh, I don't know quite what, uh, maybe I misunderstood your question. No, I'm sorry. I meant uh, sort of um, third-party readers to the work, not not to credit, you know, what, what happened or didn't happen, but just sort of um, readers for the, the writing of it itself and where there seemed to, you know, be things that didn't make sense or, you know, do you, did you have somebody you shared this with independent of your editor uh, in advance of it going out to sort of, you know... Oh, yes, if you read the acknowledgments, you'll find a whole roster of friends <laughs> who are credited with having seen early drafts and been very helpful in that regard. Yes. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful. And uh, are, there more, uh, are there more books on your plate? Ah, well, I'm I'm lunching with the publisher later in the week, and, and we'll just have to wait and see. I love it. I love it. <laughs> this was, you know, and, it, you know, the, you're so charming in person. You're so charming in your interviews, witty, funny, <sighs> dry. It's fantastic, and that voice really comes through in this memoir as well. It's, uh, I'm so happy to hear it, Marie. Wonderful, wonderful. Any advice for writers? Keep at it, never give up. And uh, as Edmund Wilson used to advise, every time you get one of those rejection slips, send it right out in the the next mail. (laughs) I love it. I love it. (laughs) Janet Groth, this was a huge pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Marie. Thank you. That was Janet Groth. The book is The Receptionist. It is out and available. It's published by Algonquin. You can find out more about Janet and uh, her work at The New Yorker online. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for this week. I will be right back here with you next Wednesday morning, 9 a.m., as we always are. So please uh, stay tuned for that. Stay tuned. Coming up next is Sister LaRue with Positive Vibrations, little reggae to take you into the rest of your Wednesday. So stick around for that. And thank Thanks so much for joining me. Have a great day. Hey.
was on 